A reading from Isaiah. But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Ethiopia and Seba in exchange for you. Because you are precious in my sight and honored, and I love you, I give people in return for you, nations in exchange for your life. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from far away, and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. The word of the Lord. A reading from Acts 8. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. The two went down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet the Spirit had not come upon any of them, they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. The word of the Lord. The Holy Gospel today comes from the book of St. Luke, the third chapter, beginning with the 15th verse. As the people were filled with expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Messiah, John answered all of them by saying, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I is coming. I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his granary but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, the Beloved. With you I am well pleased. The Gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. My dear siblings, grace and peace to you from God in whom we live and move and have our being. Amen. Um, today is uh, the typical Sunday of the year where we talk about baptism. Uh, and it's the Sunday, it's always the first Sunday after Epiphany when we read the story based on the gospel that we're in of Jesus' baptism by John. And it's one of those stories that doesn't repeat every three years, but rather it repeats every year. And so here I am talking about baptism every single year, which can become a difficult thing to talk about year after year after year. However, baptism is not just one of these fundamental concepts and rituals of Christianity. I would say it's probably one of the most misunderstood. And what makes it misunderstood is to say, what is baptism? 
I think not only different people would have different answers to that question, but different church bodies would have different answers to that question. Um, it's a question I get a lot as a pastor because most people don't really understand what baptism is. Uh, and I preach on it so often because, as I said, it comes up in the lectionary year after year after year, but it's not one of those things that I kind of dread talking about year after year after year. I mean, if you think I'm going to be a pastor for maybe 30 years to have to give 30 different sermons on a single topic is a bit exhausting. However, I find with regard to baptism that even my own understanding as a pastor is evolving with baptism as I look at it year after year after year. Now, now I think one thing that all churches would agree on, every national church body out there, every church across the globe, is to say that, that baptism, in a nutshell, is, is a way for a person who is being baptized to say, I am a Christian. Or if it's a parent baptizing their infant child, it's a way of saying that I plan on raising my child as a Christian. In a nutshell, that is what baptism is. It's a commitment to being or raising a child as a Christian. The point of departure, however, is that a lot of our society, a lot of our church bodies don't agree on what a Christian is. Thus, we don't really agree on what we are being baptized into. And I would say even today that baptism probably reflects more of what Christianity has become in our society today than what it meant 2,000 years ago when John was doing his baptisms, when Jesus was baptized. And this is going to sound a little mean. I mean this more as an objective point than a mean point. But baptism reflects what Christianity has become in the sense that it's very individualistic and it's very self-centered. What I mean by that is that baptism has become another response to that question of how do I avoid hell and how do I get into heaven? And for a lot of parents who baptize their child, it's that same thing. It's that insurance policy. How do I ensure my kid gets into heaven? How do I ensure that my kid avoids hell? I mean, this is one of those things that I've had a lot of experience with, with parents in this area, when I was a hospital chaplain in Chicago, I would get a lot of calls for a kid who was very sick, and the parents would ask, would you please baptize our child? They're so sick, and that fear of maybe the child might die, this would just ensure that that child gets to heaven if that happens. I also do a lot of private baptisms as a pastor. I can't tell you how many private baptisms I get asked to do. People who are, are somewhat affiliated with the church or people who know of our existence, who have some kind of a connection with me and have asked, can you please baptize my child, but not in a service, please do it privately. And I try to tell them, look, baptism is, is it's an induction into a community. It's a way to say that I want to be a part of this this community at Bethania, but this community at large in the world in a private baptism, is it kind of negates that concept. But still, I will always, always baptize if asked to, because I always want God's answer for someone to be yes. But in these experiences with chaplaincy and private baptisms, you see that a lot of our society has this individualistic, self-centered approach to baptism. It's really for me or my child, and it's for their own salvation. 
And as I said, this reflects what Christianity has become today. Christianity is this belief that if, if I believe in Jesus, then I am saved and that's all there is to it. And for any of you who have heard me preach for the last six years, who are part of the various ministries at Bethania, that's just not what we believe. That's not how we navigate through this world. So when we look at, at um, what baptism means for John, for Jesus, for the crowd that comes, we get a very different understanding than what people today think baptism is. And when we look at what baptism was for John and Jesus and the crowds, we get a different answer to these questions of, of what does it mean to be a Christian and what are we being baptized into? And I want to kind of um, bring that out for us today because, I, as I said, this has been an evolving concept for me as a pastor. And I want to start, obviously, with what baptism is not, okay? And simple but here you go. And this is going to be a little bit provocative. Baptism is not necessary. And I really want to make that point. Baptism is not necessary. It's not necessary in the sense that we do not need to be baptized in order to get to heaven after we die. We do not need to be baptized in order to avoid hell after we die. Baptism is no more necessary than it is necessary for a couple who decides that they want to spend their life together to get married. Is it significant? Is it sacred? Is it beautiful? Is it full of commitment? Absolutely. Is it something that, that we believe is a means of grace that God extends to God's people? Yes. Is it something that we should do as a church? Absolutely. But it's not necessary at least not in the way that people treat it. Lastly, I would say that this idea that baptism is something that, that helps an individual get to heaven or avoid hell, in fact, I would say, has distracted people from seeing what baptism really is meant to be. And that's what we get in our gospel text today. There's, there's two points of baptism in our gospel text today. There's the baptism that John is doing, this baptism with water, as he says. But then there's this baptism that he says Jesus is going to come and do, which is odd, right? Because we don't ever see Jesus baptize anybody in the gospels. Not once does Jesus baptize someone in the gospels. Yet, John says that Jesus is coming after me and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And then he goes into this really apocalyptic thing of, of separating the grains from the chaff and the chaff is going to burn. I'll get to that in a second. But we have these two points of baptism, one that John does and then one that John says Jesus is going to do. Now, I talked about this a few weeks ago. There was, as scholars say, a baptismal movement that happened in antiquity in ancient Palestine. This movement that John himself started. John was baptizing people in the wilderness, baptizing them in the River Jordan. People were flocking to John in droves to be baptized. Why? Why did John think people needed to be baptized? Well, as I said a few weeks ago, it was for repentance. John believed that Rome was God's punishment to the Israelites. And the reason that God was punishing the Israelites with Rome was because the Israelites had neglected justice. They had neglected caring for, as Jesus says, the least of these. 
We know this because when the crowd, after they are baptized, they ask John, what should we do? He says, give your coat to someone who needs it. Tax collectors, stop exploiting people. Soldiers, stop exploiting people. Take care of one another. These were the things that John thought people needed to repent from. Being baptized was a way for people to wash, to cleanse themselves from this way of life that was okay with injustice, that was, with, that was okay with exploiting people, with harming people, with not caring for the least of these. So point number one, what is baptism? Baptism is choosing another way of life. Specifically, choosing a way of life that cares for other people. That's it. It is washing away this self-centeredness, this idea that we should only look after ourselves, this idea that, that, that God's salvation, that Jesus is here just for me, if I believe. Baptism is washing that away, repenting of it, and instead turning our gaze, our compassion, our love, our acts towards other people especially the least of these. But then there's this baptism by fire that John says Jesus is going to do. And this is different than the baptism we think about because, as I said, Jesus doesn't baptize anybody. So what is John talking about? Typically, when we read this text, when we read about Jesus baptizing with fire, Jesus separating the grain and the chaff and burning the chaff, we think this is individualistically about people. We think that, that John is saying that Jesus is going to take all of the unbelievers out there, all of the unbaptized, and, and send them to hell, which is a horrible, horrible, horrible thing. It's also not biblical. The gospel is not talking about Jesus sending individual people to a different place because they don't believe. He's not talking about sending individual people anywhere, in fact. What the gospel is talking about, what Jesus is talking about, and this happens anytime Jesus talks about judgment, separation, any of that stuff, it's, it's talking about the systems that exist in our world, the systems that cause us to live a life of injustice, whether it's explicit or implicit. John is saying that Jesus is going to come into this world and he's going to look at a system that allows an empire like Rome to harm people or a system that allows the, 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 the elders in the temple to exploit their own people because of their relationship with Rome or a system that looks at, at just the common person and their apathy towards loving other people or their tribalism that would look at a Samaritan and say they are profane simply because of who they are. The judgment that, that John says Jesus is coming to make, the separation that Jesus is coming to make, it's not towards people, it's towards the systems that exist in our life that cause us to look out for just me and the systems that cause us to harm other people. Folks, Jesus loved individuals. He loved everybody. Jewish people, Romans, Sumerians, tax collectors, prostitutes, sinners. Jesus loved everybody. But the judgment that Jesus came to have was against the systems that cause us to harm. This is the baptism that John is saying Jesus comes to bring. Jesus' ministry was centered on ridding our world, our communities, of these systems by calling them out and by inviting people, his followers, into a new way of life. 
And when we baptize today, whether they are adults or kids, what we're really doing as a church is baptizing them into a new way of life of just simply loving other people. And when we treat baptism as this, this individualistic, self-centered, salvation-based thing, then we distract from baptism as this call into a new way of life. There's a, a philosopher I follow, Peter Rollins. I've used him in some of our Lenten suppers before. And he has this book of, of provocative parables that he likes um, to use during Lent. I, I've used them too. But he has this one story that I think really drives the point home. And it's a parable. It's not, it's not meant to be real. It's meant to provoke our emotions. Story goes, in a world where following Christ has been made illegal, a man is arrested and dragged before the court. When the trial begins, the prosecution brings up photographs showing the man attending church meetings, speaking at religious events, and participating in various services. Next, they present items confiscated from the man's own house, religious books, worship CDs, even the man's journal with poems and other writings concerning his deep, deep faith in Jesus. Finally, the prosecution presents the man's own well-worn Bible with many passages underlined and margins full of notes. During the trial, the man contemplates denying Christ at the fear of being imprisoned or executed, but through his own prayer remains convicted in his Christian stance. Once the prosecution concludes, the judge asks the man if he has anything to say on his own behalf, but the man remains silent in the face of his accusers. He's then led outside while the judge ponders the case. After hours of anxious waiting, a bailiff appears and leads the man back into the courtroom. Once settled, the judge reads the verdict. Of the charges that have been brought forward, I find the accused not guilty. The man's fear of punishment suddenly turns to anger at hearing this verdict. How could he be innocent? So he finally speaks up and demands an accounting of the charge by the judge given the evidence. What evidence? The judge replies. What about the poems and prose that I wrote? The man says. Well, they simply show that you think yourself as a poet. Nothing more. But what about the services I spoke at, the times I wept in church, and the long, sleepless nights of prayer? Evidence that you are a good speaker and actor. Nothing more, replied the judge. It is obvious that you have deluded those around you, and perhaps at times even deluded yourself. But this foolishness is not enough to convict you in a court of law. But this is madness, he shouts. It would seem that no evidence would convince you. Not so, replies the judge, as if informing him of a great, long-forgotten secret. The court is indifferent towards your Bible reading and your church attendance. It has no concern for worship with words and a pen. Continue to develop your theology and use it to paint pictures of love. We have no interest in such armchair artists who spend their time creating images of a better world. We exist only for those who would lay down that brush and their life in a Christ-like endeavor to create it. So until you live as Christ and his followers, until you challenge this system and become a thorn in our side, until you die to yourself and offer your body to the flames, until then, my friend, 
you are no enemy of ours. Now, I say baptism isn't necessary because people all over the world live into this way of life already. Their actions speak their faith. Their actions speak God's love. Yet, baptism is a wonderful reminder of this way of life that we're called into. Baptism is something we should do constantly. It should remind us of this community that we get to be a part of, this community of inclusivity, of love, of welcome, a community that centers itself on God's love for us and calls us in action to share that love with others. When John speaks of Jesus' baptism, I don't think he's talking about some baptism that each of us as individuals are going to go through. I think Jesus is talking, or John is talking about Jesus' entire life, ministry, death, and resurrection. I think that was the baptism that our world needed because it gave us a model to living, a model of living to create a more loving world, a world where all are welcome and where God's love and compassion are the guiding principles of our life. Amen.